You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant to shot. LeBron James with no regard for human life. Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Welcome to On the NBA Beat. I am Aaron Fishman alongside my trusty co-hosts, Joshua, also of the Fishman clan, and Lauren Lee Chen. This show, to talk about the Phoenix Suns, we're bringing on Andrew Lynch, senior NBA writer for Fox Sports. Andrew's first appearance came in January of last season less than a month before Jeff Hornacek was fired. The 2016-17 Suns under Earl Watson haven't fared much better, but a day before our interview, a man with a sweet stroke named Devin Booker dropped 70 points and set the NBA world on fire. Without further ado, let's just get to the interview. Hey Andrew, what's going on? Hey guys, good to hear from you. Glad to all be living in Devin Booker's universe. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. I think it would be crazy if that wasn't the first question that I asked you. He dropped 70 points on Friday night. He became the second ever to notch 70 points, five assists, and five rebounds, and the sixth player in NBA history to score 70 or more. Contextualizing it, including what happened with the timeouts, and what Isaiah Thomas, Jay Crowder, and some others took exception to, and the fact that it came in a loss. How crazy was Devin Booker's outburst? Yeah, it was Chamberlain-esque, right? The stories about Wilt scoring 100 always include the the anecdotes about how they were fouling to get the ball back, and they were, I don't know if they were necessarily calling timeouts to get him as many possessions as possible. So I thought that was funny, like as we're all sitting here talking about Kobe, 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 because of the 81 points, of course, there was that like Wilt sense about it. It was crazy. It was like as a Suns fan, as a Suns observer, like someone who's watched every Suns game for as long as I can remember, like in this season, Suns fans needed something like that, I think. And it, it's just perfectly fitting. I tweeted this last night that it came in a loss. Like all of my favorite Suns memories are in losses. Um, <laughs> I know people want to maybe belittle the achievement a little bit because he was taking so many shots because they were fouling because they were calling timeouts 70 points to 70 points in an nba game period yeah i thought for a 20 year old devin booker's quote showed a lot of insight and wisdom into what exactly happened he was honest that he's used to winning his whole life as are a lot of his teammates and that this has not been a fun season but kind of like what you said that They needed something this season to really get them out of their rut. Obviously, they're not headed toward the playoffs, but just something to forget about the season that they had. But he put it into perspective, I thought, pretty well for such a young guy. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I thought so. I thought people, you know, you have to take everything in context like you said at the top of this like people were upset about the the pictures where everyone's crowding around him and being like oh you scored 70 congratulations and they lost and like jay crowder had the comment on the instagram post they went back and forth with that like mm-hmm. this season has been a complete lost cause like even even on the tanking front and we can talk about this in a little bit i'm sure i'm not convinced that that is the best strategy for phoenix moving forward so i think for a 20 year old to take a step back and be like yeah you know it's 
listen, it's been two years now, really, of like lackluster play, lackluster performances. It was nice to just kind of go off for one night. I And I agree with him. Do you think that Devin Booker has been underwhelming at points? It's crazy to say that because he's only 20 years old and he's averaging nearly 22 points per game. But are there areas where you see that his age comes into play and he's not that consistent offensive force that you think he can be and should be? Yes, but it's not his fault. Like he's 20 years old. He's going to go out there and he's going to play basketball and he's going to try and dunk on people. And he's going to try and, you know, take a a sidestep three pointer and like taunt. Like that's, that's what he's doing. That's what he should be doing at this age. It's Earl Watson's fault. Honestly, again, goes back to context. Last year, Devin Booker looked like this, like savior level phenom, the kind of player that the Phoenix has needed since Steve Nash's departure. And everyone was like, all right, this is amazing. He's a rookie. He's playing out of his mind. He's shooting well from three pointers. Like he's, He's playing okay defense. He's a ball handler. He's a playmaker. This is great. This year, he's taken a huge step backward. And I think that's because there is a lack of structure around him. Like Earl Watson is is a great guy to get the players playing as hard as possible for him. Guys love him. He's a great locker room guy. And I, I love all that. It doesn't seem like there's necessarily a design for how this team improves moving forward as a unit and as individuals. They just and I hate to say this because it's one of the worst things you can say about an NBA coach, but it's borderline just rolling the ball out there and letting them play basketball. And that's and, and, yeah. and it's like Devin Booker is ideally he's probably a secondary ball handler in all season long or until this past month when they benched him. You've had Eric Bledsoe there like that should be a fantastic pairing. You should be figuring out ways to get them both involved in the pick and roll and almost have like a dribble drive motion based offense, which, oh, by the way, they're both used to playing at Kentucky. Mm-hmm. There's there's a system that should be in place here. And I'm going to I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Sorry, but like the 76ers, you know, the poster mm-hmm. children for tanking, the process became a cliche. But it's, it's the process. When they decided to tank on a systemic level, it was from the top down. They had a general manager who was going to approach asset accumulation from a tanking perspective. The coach, Brett Brown, who does not get enough credit, was the right guy to A, keep players' chins up while they're losing all those games, B, develop their individual talents, and C, try to get them to play as a cohesive unit. It, it very rarely has succeeded, but at least the scaffolding is there to build something larger with the suns. You just have a bunch of people running around like with hammers and masonry tools going, Hey, this is fun. Bob, the builder. This is fun. That's never good to hear. Just really quick before we move on from Devin Booker, does he have the ability to be a better defender? 100%. And I, I, I I think people too often get caught up in, Oh, defense is effort. Oh, defense is, you just have to try hard. That's not true at the NBA level. Like defense is about knowing the offensive player's tendencies. It's about knowing where your help is coming from, and it's about knowing what's coming next. And so I think as Booker gains more experience in the NBA, gains more knowledge on that end of the court, and hopefully there's a system put in place again on that end of the court, he'll be better. He has all the tools in the world and all the all the smarts in the world to at least be an average defender and if he can reach his ceiling as an offensive player, that's good enough, right? That's that's what we see with James Harden. Like, if you can become just a passable defender where you're not a negative on that end and you're just otherworldly on offense, cool. 
Eric Bledsoe, I think people considered him probably the best all-around player on the Suns before he was shut down for the remainder of the season with knee issues again. He turned 27 earlier this season. Do you think what we saw in the earlier part of this season was peak Bledsoe, or which areas do you think he should target for more improvement? Yeah, I mean, it's it's as close as we've seen in, in terms of his injury status and stuff like that. And basically since he came to the suns from the clippers uh it's it's tough like you said he's 27 years old he's probably at his peak now or at least he's not going to get any better which sucks to say um his ceiling is probably where he is now he's he's the starter on a decent team maybe a fringe playoff contender i think he's probably long term you know the the super sixth man coming off the bench for a championship contender you know, if he if he moves on from Phoenix sooner than later, as for areas where he can improve, I think if injuries continue to sap his athleticism, this isn't a novel thought, but it's it's a common thought for a reason. Just continue to work on that three point shooting, especially as a spot up shooter. He's really effective off the dribble, more so in the mid range, though. I think if he can kind of stretch the floor a little bit and become more more of a I don't want to say a Jason Kidd type, you know, in late career kid because he's he's way more athletic than that still and he doesn't necessarily have the size that Kidd did, but I think he can become a a three-point shooter, a a playmaker on the perimeter who doesn't necessarily get into the teeth of a defense anymore and a, a really tenacious defender. He's always going to have that. Yeah, and as you said, this is now the third of four seasons he's had with the Suns in which he's missed significant time to injury, all with injuries to his left leg, left knee area. For someone who currently, it seems like, relies so much on his athleticism, are you concerned about that derailing his career? I mean, it's concerning in so much as he's going to take a step back, for sure. He's not going to be an all-star caliber point guard when he's healthy within the next year or even two, maybe. But he uses angles so well. Like part of his athleticism is his ability to rub his guy off of a screen at the exact right angle to create the maximum amount of space or to come off of a screen and maybe, you know, have his big flip it at the last minute. So he uses that geometry of the game so well. I'm not as concerned about a slip in athleticism with him as I might be with someone like Russell Westbrook, much better player, much stronger athlete. There's a sloppiness to Russ's game that makes him so explosive, that makes him so spectacular. Bledsoe's a little sharper than that. I think you think back to a few years ago when the Suns were running their three-point guard roster of Isaiah Thomas, Goran Dragic, and Eric Bledsoe, and they decided to essentially just keep Bledsoe out of the three. Now we're seeing Thomas and Dragic both thrive in their new homes. I know the situation wasn't the opportunity wasn't necessarily there to keep all three of them. But can you remind us about the calculus at the time for choosing Bledsoe among the three? Or do you think they should have maybe given more time to that multi-guard experiment there? So that's a tough one to answer, frankly, because there are things that happen at that locker room that will never see the light of day that if the public knew, they'd go, oh, okay, I understand what happened there. I can't say a whole lot more than that, and I apologize, but that, like, there are things that reporters in the locker room witness that, well, again, no one will ever really talk about, and we could talk a little bit about this off-air because it's really intriguing stuff. Uh, but I will say this. For any Suns fan or any NBA observer who wonders what the hell happened in that situation, there are things far beyond basketball that forced the Suns' hand there. 
Now, beyond that, there were also basketball considerations. And I think a lot of it was was going back to defense. That's Goran's got some size to him, but among the three, there's not really a guy who can guard the Clay Thompsons of the world, who can guard the J.R. Smiths of the world, or even the Iman Shumperts of the world. So it becomes tough to run out three-point guards for two spots, essentially. You've always got two of the three on the court and have any semblance of a defense. So I think when the Suns realized that they weren't going to blow teams off the court with that three-point guard system, they were like, okay, well, maybe we do need to dedicate some of our resources and some of our, to use uh, Coach David Thorpe's phrase, some of our royal jelly to someone who's going to play defense. And in that case, Bledsoe was the clear pick. He was the guy who had, you know, that, that defensive tenacity to him, was also a primary playmaker. And if you could find a big point guard, could play a little bit better off the ball than the other two. Rumors recently linked head coach Earl Watson to the UCLA job, but with Steve Alford returning to the Bruins, Watson is not leaving necessarily anytime soon. How, if at all, has Earl Watson provided a compass for this struggling team after the turmoil at the end of the Hornacek era? Like I said earlier, he it's tough to point to anything that Watson has done well on the court. That's not to say he's been a failure by any means. I'm a big believer that NBA teams, sports teams, like corporations, they need different CEOs or coaches in the different points of their lifespan. The Suns, after the horny era, they needed someone who could rally the people in the locker room and get everyone, to use your compass analogy, which is fitting, get everyone pointed in the same direction. And I think Watson has done a really good job of that. There are a lot of really young guys on this team that want minutes, that want a chance to prove that they can be the the guy to turn the franchise around. And not all of them are going to be able to get time, especially, you know, maybe over the course of an 82 game season, you can find minutes for them here and there. But it takes a special talent to be able to massage those egos and to keep everyone from going at each other's throats. And by all accounts, Watson's done a phenomenal job of that. So while I might have some problems with his X's and O's and with some of the the structural things there, that shouldn't take away from what he has done really well as a coach. And it's especially tough dealing with such a young lineup. Doug Haller of AZ Central noted that Thursday's starting lineup was the youngest in NBA history at an average age of 21 years and 14 days. Seven of the Sweet 16 teams that were playing that night had an older starting lineup than the Suns. Can you talk about the importance of forcing the youngsters into big roles so early in their career and the potential drawbacks of not easing some of them in more slowly? I can't. First of all, though, that's absurd. Like everyone has noted that, that the Suns had the youngest lineup in NBA history and that March Madness related fact. That is patently absurd that in the 70 year history of the NBA now, that was the the youngest lineup in NBA history. Like I know we go back to to freshmen only being in the league for the past 30, 40 years, and then really even only in the past 20 years in any significant numbers. That's still crazy. So I I just wanted to like harp on that for a second because I feel like everyone has noted it and just been like, oh, yeah, that's an interesting fact. That's that's ludicrous. Um, I think when you have those kinds of young players, it comes down to defining roles for guys. Like someone like Tyler Ulis has maybe had the the 
best development arc on the Suns this year, it's because he knew exactly what he was what he was there to do. He was the third point guard behind Bledsoe and Brandon Knight. Then when they sidelined Knight at the trade dead, at the All Star break. All of a sudden, he became the backup. And then when they sign-line Bledsoe, it's like, okay, you're the starter now. And that all along, it was very clear. Play your role as the third point guard with the reserves. Be as tenacious of a defender as you can be. I keep using that phrase. I love Tenacious D, the you know Jack Black, the band. So it's just, <laughs> just a personal tick. Be, be as tenacious a defender as you can be. Be a playmaker, and we'll see what happens from there. And because his role has been defined, because the expectations have been set, he knows what he's supposed to do, he's flourished. It helps that he's an incredibly smart player who plays so much bigger than he actually is, but that he knows what's expected of him helps tremendously. So I think even you see it with with Marquis Chris a little bit as well. Like he knows that his job is to come in and be an energy guy and to block shots and to disrupt offenses and to finish above the rim. And when he can flash a little bit of a jump shot or flash a little bit of a post game, you know, that's that's icing on the cake. But that's not what's expected of him. You compare that to someone who and this isn't a Watson project by any means, but Alex Len over the past several years. Like the expectation with Len was like come in and and be like be the big guy. Okay, well what does that mean? Well, you know, do big guy things. Okay, but then you just you just signed Tyson Chandler to try and bring LaMarcus Aldridge in. It's like, yeah, 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 do big guy things. And it's like it, it's no wonder that Len who wants to be very very good, wants to be an outstanding basketball player, hasn't really found his role with the Suns or in the NBA because it's just like just go out there and 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 if we sign another big guy to take your place, don't worry about it. What what do you expect to happen for a guy like that? While we're talking about these young guys trying to figure out their roles, what about the effect, even though they're not playing much anymore, that Tyson Chandler, Jared Dudley, and Leandro Barbosa have had as veterans on the team? You know, it's t- I, because I'm not in Phoenix, it's tough for me to speak to that too much, so I won't speculate all that much but i'll speculate a little bit chandler and dudley in particular those guys are just that's what they want to do they want to teach they want they want young guys to succeed um so by by all accounts they've they've been fantastic on that front it's interesting i think every team especially young teams need guys like that it helps when they can play a little bit still and while dudley isn't necessarily getting a ton of minutes like when he has played he's played well so that's nice. It's nice when you're it's nice when you have Jared Dudley and not Lou Aldang. Yeah. So Marquise Chris has really been coming on strong as the season closes. He's averaging more than 13 points per game in March and even more over the last 10 days. He's also shooting better than 40 percent from three and nearly 50 percent from everywhere. A lot of blocks too. this month, 1.7 per game. How much? Should this post-All-Star break success be able to translate beyond this rookie season of his? I think it's big. He was one of the standouts at Summer League. It was funny. He, For a guy who's so athletic, he actually had a little bit of a problem finishing above the rim at Summer League, which continued into the preseason. It hasn't of late, obviously. Uh, but he's always been very active on defense. I think... Again, it comes back to what Watson and the coaching staff are able to do with this hot start. Is it going to be another instance where it's like Booker and he has a great first season and then they don't build upon it? Because with a guy like Chris, it's like, okay, we we know that you can play really well with 
a second unit. Now we see that you're starting to play decently against starters. How do we now take what you've learned against those starters and build on that to make it so that you are a starting caliber player yourself? Because there's a big difference between being able to be in the starting lineup in March and being able to be a starter in October. I don't know that he's going to get to that point by next season because he still has a long way to go, but he is so young. I'm just hopeful that the coaching staff is able to to continue to work on his defense, work on his footwork, which is improved drastically as the season has gone on, but still has a long way to go. And then just continue to to foster his nose for the ball and his and his defensive instincts. His instincts are great. I think he just needs to tone down the overhelping a little bit, which most young guys do, and and just become a part of the larger system. We're hopeful about his growth too. You did reference Alex Land a little bit earlier lottery pick not too long ago what are the challenges that he faces with his growth I know a lot of people are disappointed about his trajectory currently I believe he'll be a restricted free agent in the offseason yeah I think the challenge with him is just consistency he's a guy that needs to be even if it's only 15 or 20 minutes per game he needs to be on the court consistently and he needs to be on the court with the same guys and picking up you know good habits and he just hasn't had that opportunity in phoenix in any of his seasons so i i think the suns will probably end up moving on from him which is probably for the best for both i don't think he is going to make much of an impact on phoenix long term but I do think that if he ends up in the right situation, maybe somewhere like Houston, if they can get him for the right price, that would be really intriguing. Anytime that an organization has misses in the lottery, it's disappointing. But Especially they do when have they a... take him before Nerland's Noel. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's definitely a good point. And there are, there are a handful of franchises that are racking up these lottery misses. It's disappointing, but... We have mentioned a number of young players that the Suns are really excited about. One guy I'm curious to gauge your excitement level on is Tyler Eulis. I know he's really small. I liked watching him at Kentucky last year and seeing him on the court. Such a smart, fundamental player. Really good assist-to-turnover ratio already manifesting itself in his rookie season. Just realistically, what are your expectations for him maybe two or three years down the line? Guys, he is so good. Like we, you said, I'm anxious to to judge your excitement on Tyler Eulis. When you said his name, I started fighting the air out of joy. Like he is. <laughs> you just I, wanted to start answering. Before. Yeah, exactly. I I almost shouted, "My man!" Like I love Tyler so much. Uh, and with PJ Tucker gone, it's perfect because PJ has always been my my favorite son. He's one of my top three favorite NBA players. I hope he flourishes in Toronto. Tyler brings that same like leadership dynamic. Even as a young dude, he comes in and he is immediately the guy that everyone in the locker room is looking at and everyone on the court when he steps onto the court is looking at. I can't say enough about him. I think obviously there's a, a ceiling on his capability because of his height, and that sucks. But basketball is a game based on height at the end of the day, all things being equal to take the guy who's taller. With that said, like as you pointed out, he is so smart. He's such a fundamental player. He's so good on defense. Like he knows 
he doesn't just know where opposing ball handlers want to go with the ball. He knows how they want to get there in terms of the dribble, whether they're going to go inside out, whether they're going to cross him over, whatever it might be. His hands aren't in passing lanes. They're in dribbling lanes. I haven't seen anything like it, honestly, since like going back to Stacey Ogman or Gary Payton. Like those, That's the type of defender he is. He's, he's so ridiculously good and I, I have the highest expectations for him not in the sense that like if he doesn't meet them I'm going to be disappointed just in that I am not going to put a cap on what I expect out of him because every time anyone has done that with Tyler Eulis he's proven them wrong where do you think you would put the ceiling for TJ Warren now I know he's had some flashes of greatness some refer to him as having future star potential as a two-way player but it seems like he's another guy on the Suns that's sometimes inconsistent game to game. So where do you think he has to improve to realize his potential? It's consistency, like you said, which again comes with just being on the court with the same players regularly. As for a ceiling, it's lazy because he's a he's a former son and hopefully a future Hall of Famer, which <laughs> you know I to but it's Sean Marion. Like that's I think that's TJ's ceiling. They're different players. They're Marion, for all the flaws in his mechanics, was probably a little bit better of an outside shooter than TJ. I think TJ might actually be a little bit better of a slasher, which might be blasphemy in Phoenix, but he's really, really good. He just, Marion was always good at cutting off of Nash and knowing when to cut when Steve was on the court. TJ Warren, like, starts to cut a half step before the the passer, the ball handler, is even looking for him. It's just, he has this, like, preternatural ability to to find the hole in the defense and make himself available for a pass right at the perfect moment. It's almost James Worthy-esque. Like, Worthy is kind of one of those guys that's been overlooked in the annals of NBA history, but he was the perfect guy to put next to Magic Johnson because he just had the perfect timing to be open for those Johnson no-look passes. And really, Showing my age there. Sorry. <laughs> and really quick, I know you have to go soon, but one last quick question. With the end of the season coming up and Suns already looking to the lottery, what do you think their draft strategy is going to be in terms of are they drafting for biggest need or are they drafting for best talent? And maybe who would you be targeting for them? It's it's definitely best player available will be their strategy. I don't think they're going to worry about taking a point guard or anything like that. As for who I would target, it's tough, guys. Like this is this is the crux or one of the one of the issues of being a sports fan. I really like Josh Jackson's game. I don't like the rest of the stuff, right? Right. Yeah. So it's he's he'd be a great fit in Phoenix. I know he's he's just another another wing, another another kind of bigger guy to try to find room for. If not him, you know, any of the guards, I think, you know, Fultz would be great. Uh, Lonzo, I, I like Lonzo Ball. I like LeVar Ball, so I'd be fine with that as well. I, I like, you know, Monk would be fine. But I I think it's gonna, so much of it will depend on where they fall in the lottery. It, but it has to be best player available at this point in their development. It has to be. Thanks so much, Andrew. We'll, we'll let you go now. And thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. Um, let's do it again soon. 